Welcome to the Empire Podcast, episode 274, A New Hope. It is a period of civil war. Chris Hewitt, demonstrating a shocking lack of work ethics, has taken an overdue holiday to France, leaving the Empire podcast ripe for hostile takeover from me, James Dyer, the Emperor Palpatine, to his giggling salacious crumb. Yes, that's right, I'm back in the cockpit this week and nothing will ever be the same again. Coming up over the next 60-plus minutes, we'll be reminiscing about the raging 80s with Atomic Blonde star James McAvoy, breaking bread with Breaking Bad star Brian Cranston, and sifting through the fetid sludge of fake news to pan out the odd nugget of movie-related gold. Joining me on this fool's errand, and conscripted largely against their will, are a pair of men who are less talented than the Coen brothers, less nostalgic than the Duffer brothers, and less French than the Dardenne brothers. They are the Brothers de Semlin seems only right to introduce them in the same order that their mother did. So first up is a man who knows more about the European theatre of war than Christopher Nolan, Harry Styles and Heinrich Himmler combined. <laughs> it is the lord of the Luftwaffe, the wizard of the Wehrmacht, Phil de Semlin. Seems only right to point out that the Dunning brothers are Belgian. Uh, Belgian, yes. I was but, actually aware I mean, of that fact, but decided to take a little dramatic Not license. to be that twat, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I didn't no, know. No, I was, I was wondering if your intro was going to be... Shambolic. <laughs> and I didn't disappoint. Uh, what's going down in Philtown? What's going down in Philtown? What, what have you seen this week? You've seen nothing good. Um, at the movies? Yes. Um, I saw, oh my God, I was just going to just find a space in my pigeonhole. <laughs> I saw the new Francois Ozon movie of last night. Of course you did. <laughs> I did. Um, which was, um, which was quite, it was quite racy. Was it? Quite sexy. B- bit sexy. Sexy yeah, times. It was a room full of sort of past their prime film <laughs> journalists, shall we say, myself included. You just, you just... Uh, it's quite steamy for really? a Wednesday evening, yeah. Wow. Um, double Jeremy Renier. This sounds like something I will absolutely never see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. What if I say double Jeremy Renner? Oh, that's fine. Okay. That's much better. Yeah. Well, okay, good. Thank you, Phil. Pleasure. Uh, the yin to Phil Jiang. The alpha to his omega and the man who recently binge-watched the whole of Baywatch Nights for no reason I can really understand. Uh, it's Nick. Hello, Hello. Nick. Hi, James. What, what it wasn't for about? no reason, um, and I didn't watch all of it. I was hoping to get a Baywatch Nights feature into the magazine to tie in with the release of the wretched new Baywatch film. Uh, sadly, it wasn't to be, uh, but one day I will make it happen. But yes, uh, I'm still trying to get rid of the memory of the episode in which David Hasselhoff battles a deformed Viking warrior who is set <laughs> loose in LA in the present day. That's an actual episode of Baywatch Nights. It's almost hard to believe this didn't become a phenomenon. Uh, what, what other terrible TV shows have you binged recently? You are famous for this. Uh, well, I did watch Game of Thrones, not terrible. <laughs> uh, having had it thoroughly spoiled by you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do what I can. I finally got around to that last night. Uh, what else have I seen? I watched LA Story this week. Uh, but that was because I interviewed uh, the director, Mick Jackson, last night. Um, very exciting comedy director Mick Jackson of Fred's <laughs> but that was that was awesome he's a very nice guy um, but yeah that's about all I've seen uh, I've, I'm still recovering from my binge watch of the uh, the prison break return uh, which is terrible on so many levels I can't even explain not least to you. that he died yeah, that's true series. he did die at the end of I want to say season 4 whenever the last one was mm. and then he's triumphantly back but living in, in Yemen was he in the Black Lodge was that what yeah, happened but it, it's, it's not dissimilar to Twin Peaks except with more ISIS <laughs> it is. It's Michael Schofield versus ISIS. That's what this this series was. Has uh, it sort of become Homeland? I mean, it's no. It's it's unspeakably awful. It yeah. is. And Cliff, but Cliff from the West Wing is in it, so that's you know that's nice. That's good. Um, What's well, talking yeah. of Game of Thrones? There were a couple of um, gentlemen sitting next to me at the screening last night, and they were talking about I hadn't seen the episode of that in point. English or 
in no, they weren't talking in French. They were talking in English about the new Game of Thrones. Mm. Is there? And they were going to go into plot details. Is there an etiquette for telling off complete strangers? Don't be strangers a twat. Yes, yeah, so the, the etiquette is don't be a twat. Never, never discuss Game of Thrones. That's what I usually say to James, but it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I'm exempt from this. No, I, I have a whole thing. Like, if you're not going to watch Game of Thrones uh, uh, like live, then you're watching it on Monday you're... night, which means you have to stay off the whole of social media for all of Monday because America likes to ruin Game of Thrones and indeed television as mm. a whole. What about this HBO hack? Is they uh, yes. going to just, just, you know, spoil the whole show from, I mean, from now on? Like, yeah, I mean, even if drafts. they leaked episodes on the internet, who'd want to watch it? Like, I would be like, I don't want to watch it on some dodgy pirated... No, I want to watch it properly in 4K. Okay. <laughs> on the back of a dragon. That... On the back of a dragon, yes. There's... While being chased by White Walkers. That's, that's how I like to watch my Game of Thrones. some way that Game of Thrones might have upset the Koreans? I'm just trying to figure it, out... It could be. If this is a... It could be like the interview yeah. again. I don't know, we'll see. We should start, really, shouldn't we? Should we start? Oh, Let's we have... St- what? We started? <laughs> That's not we really... This is, this is the foreplay, Phil. Oh, we need right. to get on to the oh, main nasty. event. Okay. Should we have a question? Should we start with a question? That is, that is as we like to begin. This week's uh, question, we had a number of them. Many of them, wags that they are, uh, volunteered uh, questions along the lines of, when is it interesting when a role is recast with someone shit taking on the role instead of the regular actor? And I have ignored all of those. Uh, instead, we're going to go with uh, Stuart Harbison, at Stu Harb, who says, I rewatched They Live last night and wondered what is the best film where sunglasses were an actual character. Now, I don't understand that question and I sure as fuck don't have an answer for it, so uh, (laughs) let's dial it back to the best sequences with sunglasses. If for no other reason than I get to talk about uh, Iceman from Top Gun, who rocks those mirrored aviators like I think no man before or Mm. since. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I applaud the questioner for watching They Live, a film which (laughs) everyone should watch. I don't know, I can't get a sense of how many people have seen it these days. Uh, Probably quite an underwatched film, the John Carpenter sci-fi film. It's amazing. It's mm. got Rowdy Roddy Piper. Rowdy in it. Roddy Piper. And just to set up the, the story for that, uh, basically, Rowdy Roddy Piper, not playing himself, can't remember his character name, but he finds a pair of magical sunglasses. He puts them on and he looks around and he realizes that many of the people walking around LA are aliens. And they have been here for a while. And he looks at adverts and they've, the adverts transform into signs ordering you know them to consume and obey and all this kind of stuff it's a really good sci-fi film and it has an incredible fight scene um involving two men brawling for about 25 minutes over a pair of sunglasses <laughs> yeah. it's hard to top that as a sort of sunglasses moment i think did you know that rowdy ronda rousey asked rowdy roddy piper if she could be rowdy uh she wanted his uh, his blessing to use his rowdy moniker and he gave her a, right. rowdy, a rowdy thumbs up if you're gonna okay. get rowdy ask permission yeah um, did you know that he used to sell sunglasses when he was doing autographs at conventions? Um, really? He used, to, he used to, yeah, you could you could buy a pair for five bucks. Off Rowdy Roddy Piper. Off Rowdy Roddy Piper. Wow, that's hilarious. Good knowledge. Rowdy Sunnies. Um, um, I'm going to throw out uh, Terminator 2, two sequences in Terminator 2, the bad to the bone bit where he uh, he levers up as a biker and he nicks the sunglasses from the, uh, from the bar in his pocket. And also when the orderly punches him in the face and breaks his glasses and he gives her that stink eye. That's a good one. Before, like, face-palming her across the corridor. Yeah, the first of those slightly ruined by Terminator 3 in which... Oh, <laughs> that's yes, dreadful Novelty callback. sunglasses! Does that upset you? It upsets oh, me. Jonathan Mostow has a lot to answer for. What a twat. <laughs> I mean... They're kind of red... Sort of star It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. They're not good. No. They're not good. They're not. Um, I'm going to just throw in an ov- another obvious one, The Blues Brothers, yes. uh, a film in which the two protagonists, 
sorry for using the word protagonist, got very high brass. <laughs> um, you wear Ray-Ban, they're Ray-Ban Wayfarers, which uh, I interviewed John Landis not too long ago. He said that those that type of Ray-Ban was dying out and people weren't buying them anymore and they were close to being phased out entirely. They used them in Blues Brothers. Um, the studio were furious. They didn't want the two stars wearing sunglasses for the whole movie apart from the one shot where Belushi takes them off. And, um, yeah, they became like a phenomenon. And then they started getting used in, in Risky Business and all throughout the 80s, these, these sunglasses popped up everywhere. Yeah, I think that the Risky Business launched the... I understand that there was some kind of product placement deal with Ray-Ban got involved in. They paid like 50 grand. Yeah, they became like the official Hollywood sunglass provider. And, so, yeah, mm. they would turn up in, in Breakfast Club and all types of movies, um, this one pair. Are they? Is this what put Ray-Ban on the map? I mean, were they high-end beforehand, or were they like the Matalan of, of accessories? They were pretty big. They were pretty big anyway. But I think, I think it was in the 80s. you our knowledge of, of Ray-Ban's market share. <laughs> Jack Reacher in a way that I would know for. the history of Ray-Ban. I will say this, though, that after I saw Top Gun, I did get a pair of aviators. Did you? Yeah. Were they mirrored? But, looking, but at 12 were they mirrored? years old, I looked like a colossal twat. Were they mirrored? Um, they weren't mirrored, okay. I don't think, no. This is a whole thing. This, uh, this is an interesting thing, because I also have bought a pair of sunglasses. I've seen you wearing aviators yeah, when but, pretending to be Tom Cruise. Uh, oh, yes. I went to a fancy dress party as Tom Cruise. You went to? It was your fancy dress party. Did jump, on the, <laughs> did jump on the sofa. Yes, all right. It, it was, it was, I threw a party just for that. That's the one when I um, went as Hitman. You did. You had a barcode on the you. back of your head. Yeah. It was incredible. It was a good look. And Chris went as the character he played in Hostel I Part mean, two. honestly, yes. Chris went as himself. <laughs> as himself in Hostel Part 2. What a bellend. Um, um, but no, I, it's, the, the Hangover Part 2 is a not a great film, but I did think that the sunglasses that Bradley Cooper wore were pretty cool, so I came out of the cinema and Googled. <laughs> did you really? And, yeah, and I ended up buying that pair, and I lost them. But um, Of course you did. For a brief period, I'd like to think that I look like Bradley Cooper. In that. Were you not tempted to get a pair of those uh, pince-nez sunglasses that Morpheus has in The Matrix? You know, the ones without arms that just sit on the bridge of his nose. No. No? No. They're a little bit like tanning booth eye covers. Yeah, yeah. they do. They do some track with it. That's got one of the best uh, reflections in a pair of sunglasses moment in a film, yes. where you see the blue pill in one eye yes. and the red pill in another. Yes, that's a great one. Which I don't know how they did that shot, but that's a great That's a great shot. Sorry to interrupt. That is a good shot. If, if they're talking about specific moments with sunglasses, just elaborating on what Nick was saying about yeah. the Blues Brothers, when, uh, when Jake when they're in the tunnel yeah. with Carrie Fisher and he takes his shades off and gives her like the doughiest kind of un-John Belushi eyebrows. Yeah. It's just genius. Absolutely hilarious. I, and then just shoves her out of the way. And I'd, put, I'd add to that the uh, little green bag walk in uh, Reservoir Dogs because yeah. they're all wearing sunglasses. I mean, sunglasses aren't what I'd call the key to that scene, but uh, yeah. it, it's nice. I mean, they make characters look cooler. Yeah, they do. And That's why we wear them. No one's actually in any danger of being blinded by the sun. We just wear them to look cool. In, I can't remember which of the Matrix sequels, but it's the one with the fight in the rain, I'm sure many people are screaming. Well, uh, the, what, the, one, the, the last one against the multiple Yeah, where he's Smiths. fighting in the rain and he's wearing sunglasses yeah. for no reason. Yeah, well, It's not even sunny. No. Come on. No. Come on, Neo. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they often, like, film posters often have characters wearing sunglasses just because they look cool. Yeah. Uh, Hot Fuzz, um... Cobra. Yes. Cobra. Cobra, is like, Cobra is the one I think of straight away. Because, I mean, he's got that amazing gun that's basically a flame. It's like uh, sort of... Mm. Yeah. It's like crazy. an alien blowtorch. Yeah, with the, with the laser sight. And he's always chewing a matchstick. Mm. In my mind, he's got a bandana on. He's, yeah, it's, it's just, he is trying his 
absolute hardest to look cool in that shot. No one has ever tried harder no, to look cool. He's a man who does not own pyjamas. <laughs> no, I, love, really I love Cobra. And the thing I always remember about that film is that uh, Cobra's house has a massive Pepsi sign stuck on the side. <laughs> of it. Does it? And yeah, because it's got loads of Pepsi product placement, product placement. in. So the, the opening of the movie is him is the shootout in the convenience That's store. That's right, yeah. And they keep having close-ups of cans of Pepsi. And then he live, his house literally has a massive Pepsi neon billboard. <laughs> it's amazing. Shameless. That right, is shameless. Right for a reboot. Clever sunglasses. Do you remember like, in True Lies where he has the packet of cigarettes with a camera in it and he can mm. see it mm. in the sunglasses? Yes. And he's a bit where he's at urinal, but he can see the terrorists coming behind him via the cigarettes, via the sunglasses. Also, uh, Mission Impossible 2, where he gets his briefing through the sunglasses and then hurls them and they explode in midair. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. That's a nice, a nice, nice uh, moment. comedy moment I'm going to throw in. Uh, airplane. It's the double sunny reveal. Um, <laughs> Robert Stack <laughs> takes off his sunglasses to reveal a second pair of sunglasses. Amazing. Which shouldn't work. It doesn't sound that funny, but I rewatched it on YouTube just before this, and it's amazing. Did you ever... Now, there's a very real chance I'm inventing this, but I seem to recall in the 80s there was a film called Teen Agent starring Richard Grieco. Yes, uh, yes. 21 Jump Street, and he had X-ray special agent yes. sunglasses, and he used them to look at girls naked. <laughs> That's uh, not how X-ray works. No, it's not. Or spycraft. <laughs> or sunglasses. Or being a teenager. Um, yeah. Maybe it is how being a teenager works, but yeah, I used to love that film. Yeah. I used to love that film. I can remember almost nothing about it. But I used to really like it. I know. I, I, Grieco was cool because he did. Um, he wasn't cool at all. He was in Jump Street, and he did that that Jump Street spin-off called Booker, which is about his character Booker in Twenty One Jump Street. And then he did a straight-to-video erotic thriller about cats, <laughs> where people were kind of human-cat hybrids, and it was all of it sexy times. And I think that was pretty much the end of his career. Wow. It's possible we've meandered <laughs> quite far from the point at this um, point. Um, so question answer? Cool. I, I just want to throw in one final, the coolest sunglasses moment in cinema. Yep. John Woo's A Better Tomorrow. Ooh. Yun Fat, he uses a cigarette, he uses a um, $100 bill to light his cigarette and he's wearing sunglasses and it's all like lit up with the flames and the lens. it just doesn't get cooler than that. And, he's, and he's indoors. And he's indoors. <laughs> so yeah. has no reason to wear them. Yeah. I, you've got to kind of mention Audrey Hepburn, don't you, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And Lighting her cigarella <laughs> with a hundred dollar bill. With a, a Cobra style <laughs> sidearm. Um, and Prostitution you know, is a disease. Exactly. She's the cure. That doesn't work at all. <laughs> no. Um, Marcello Mastroianni in, uh, you know, the, in Eight and a Half, for instance. Pretty cool. But Lolita. My, Lolita. Uh, yeah, good point. Lolita as well. Um, but um, Water and the Dude... In the Big Lebowski, both um, where yeah. whilst we're whilst we're spook, Walter's norm specs, whilst we're doing yeah exactly is like belligerently yellow um, <laughs> ray bands. They really and are. Whilst we're like promoting, I don't sunglasses get... brands. I think the dudes of Varney, oh, I believe, yeah. But there's a scene where they're in the they go to get the ashes and they go and sit down with the sort of stuffy yeah. bang, um, um, Undertaker dude and. Uh, and uh, Walter's not wearing his sunglasses when the guy comes and sits down, but he sort of puts them on for the meeting and then just gets furiously angry, um, which is, yeah, very fun. Indoor sunglasses wear. We should all, in fact, we should all be wearing sunglasses now. I'm quite disappointed that we're not. But that's it. That's our question. Um, if you, a friend or a loved one, have a movie-related quandary you'd like us to address, uh, then by all means do let us know. As ever, you can tweet us using the hashtag EmpirePodcast or email us at podcast at empiremagazine.com, and we're also on the Facebook. Uh, right, we have not one, but two... Oh, Phil's put on sunglasses. Good man. Tell me, is James an alien? 
Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, God. I knew it. <laughs> you have no idea. Um, These are the Greco sunglasses. <laughs> you're you're no, staring at me naked. That's just weird. Nobody see your skeleton, that. James. Uh, we have not one but two interviews this week, so we better go on with one of them. Uh, first up this week is James McAvoy, a man who I can personally attest has the original Star Trek theme tune as his mobile phone ringtone. Uh, Chris spoke to our man McAvoy about David Leach's redonkulously well choreographed action film Atomic Blonde, and here it is. Uh, delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by James McAvoy. Hello, hello. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. This is your second appearance on the Emperor Podcast this year, which uh, got me to thinking. Uh, are you a podcast guy? Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, the only podcast I think I've ever listened to is the Empire Podcast. The Empire Podcast. Obviously. But the only other one I've ever listened to <laughs> is uh, Serial. You ever heard oh, of yeah, that? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and that was pretty good with um, Sarah Kunick. Yes, yes. Um, the murder it, mystery one, the unraveling, yes, yeah, the unraveling of uh, Adnan. I can't remember his second names. Um, whether he did it or didn't, that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, but other than that, no, no, no. not a podcast, okay. dude. Interesting. Okay, so if you did a podcast, uh-huh. say you had some spare time, because I know you probably don't have spare time. But if you did, uh huh, what would it be on? Uh, <clears throat> it would probably be on actors, not not films or anything like that. It would be on acting. All right, okay. Because I love talking about acting. Well, like a, a deep dive. Yeah. With fellow actors. Deep into... penetration. <laughs> Full penetrative conversational podcasting. Well, that's a completely different podcast. But yeah. uh, that would be interesting because you know, technique and process. Technique, all process, sort of speculation, um, maybe interviews with actors, uh-huh. uh, talking about how they do what they do. Because I don't know, people might not find it fascinating, but I find it really interesting talking about how other people do it compared yeah. to me or the other people that I've, I've talked to. There are things I always find fascinating about, about acting as well. Uh, I always want to know whether you now, do you think you're a better actor now than you were when you started out? Yes. Okay. In what way have you improved? And what, and what made you improve? Uh, I think my range is much bigger. I think I'm more aware of the story that I have to tell to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just... I think when I started out, I was just trying to be truthful. I was trying to be... Whatever that means. Mm. Uh, I was trying to be... Um, authentic mm-hmm. and truthful and believable. That was my prime objective. And that was kind of my only objective. And I felt like I was just sort of scrabbling to stay afloat to do that. Um, and if I felt for a second like I was doing that, then it was a good day. Whereas now, I just trust all that's going to happen and I can concentrate on actually telling a story, being um, being in charge of any version of the truth that I decide to portray, mm-hmm. but I decide which type of truth I'm going to portray in order to tell the story and tell it in a particular way at a particular moment. And it means... The story leads me and guides me more than some um, adherence to the idea that the truth is everything or that being authentic is everything. Being believable is the most important thing. Mm. Some For some actors, it's all that matters. And for me, I, I'd rather be... I'd rather watch a, a, a dishonest moment that told me an interesting story <laughs> than a guy being the most believable guy in the world but there's no great story being told, you know yeah. what I mean? What about, what about this? What about Atomic Blonde, which is... Uh, you know, I think David Leach from this and John Wick is a, seems to be a very fastidious director. He comes in with a very, very uh, clear idea of what the frame's going to be and where yep. you are within that frame. Uh, uh, is that fair? Or does he, does he allow that sort of improvisation and, and collaboration? 
Oh yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah. a lot of improv. I don't know about the rest of the actors, but I did a lot of improv, <laughs> and he seemed to he seemed to like like me doing that and push me to do that. Um, but he's got very strong ideas. Uh, he's got a very strong notion of what he wants the scene to be like. And if it's working, we all do it, and it's great. And if it's not working, yeah, we explore and we we fool around a little bit. And he's got and if he's got time, he likes to sort of let it happen organically as well. I didn't find him prescriptive. I found him very collaborative, mm-hmm. um, but still very much the leader of the ship and. And a guy that likes being on a film set making movies, which not a lot of film directors that I've worked with do, mm. they find it a trial and they just want to get to the editing room and, and make their movie there and stop being with all these people who've made 20, 200 more movies than they have and they actually intimidate them, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And David has been in the trenches yeah. for years and he is, he's sort of, you know, he's he's a grunt who's now got up to officer class yeah. and it's like and it, it, it tells because he loves physical production and everybody loves working with him because of that um, his craft is honed um, he's not picking it up because this is only his fourth movie do you know what I mean mm. he's, I don't know how many movies he's made but he's been second mm. unit stunt yeah. director on oh God. gazillions yeah. so he, his craft is there he's honed he's a master craftsman um, which again is pretty rare because you know a prolific director doesn't get to make that many movies in their career mm. it just you can't it takes so long to make them you know mm. whereas he's been able to like jump from job to job to job to job to job three months in this one two months in that one three yeah, months yeah. this one two months in that one another director might take, might take him ten years to make that many movies um, so it's a joy working with him because he knows how to get it done and he knows how to get it done well particularly uh, I mean he has many strings to his bow but the amount of action movies I watch with amazing action happening and I know that actor and that stuntman are doing incredible stuff and I just can't see it Hmm. and he knows how to show somebody rolling down a stair set of stairs and you watch every bone crack you can see every single tend and stretch do you know what I mean it's like you see every punch you see every jaw broken you see you see every exquisitely fucking executed roundhouse kick you see it all (laughs) you see it all and you marvel at the brutal beauty of it do you know what I mean because of it and it's just it's I've not apart from the fact that it's super stylishly done as well I just get to see it it's a prime requisite yeah. As a viewer, that you're allowed to see everything that happens. Oh yeah, yeah. And as an action movie, it's not. It's pretty rare. You know where everyone is in relation to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Did you shoot this in between uh, Apocalypse and and Split? Uh, no, uh, I shot it after Split. After Split, it was between Split and Submergence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it why I'm bald for nearly everything I do now. <laughs> I know this is the first time I've seen you with hair for about two years. Yeah, and Something I'm going like to shave it off next week. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're you're going back into the fray, back into X Men, then straight into Glass. Okay. So yeah, it will be baldy me for I think <laughs> until probably the end of the year. But I quite like it. I enjoy it. It's yeah. nice. It's simple, and I like it. <laughs> My only worry is though that like when it finally grows back next year, I'm be like, oh, I'm losing it. I'd rather lose it like slowly and see it going rather than shave my uh-huh. head let it grow back and it just doesn't grow back do you know what I mean do you have a history of baldness in your family nah not really you'll be fine yeah I think so okay. you'll be fine yeah my dad and my grandfather performed cue balls both and I, oh really know. oh yeah 
I also think that thing of though where people say, Oh, you shave your head, it grows back curly, or you shave your head and it grows back different. <laughs> or your cow licks in a different place. I'm like, it's not true, mine's just grown back the exact same way. <laughs> Believe me, if that were true, I would try shaving it. If I just knew it was gonna grow back twice as thick <laughs> in the areas where it's slightly thin, just yeah, you know, I'll fucking shave it, I don't care. Uh but so you want so you are going into X Men. That is something that's yeah, happening. About a week and a half, two weeks, we're gonna go up and start rehearsals. Alright, Grant, that's Dark Phoenix. Yeah, or Supernova, I think. Yeah, whatever it's called this week, yeah. it'll be called something else. But yeah. uh, but that's that's because the last time we spoke was for Split, and uh, I know X Men was on the agenda for everybody at that point. And you said that you didn't, you weren't going back for New Mutants. Certainly, no. At one was, point, was I was in it. At one point, I definitely was in that script, right? Um, and that's why. And Simon Kinberg said I was in it as well, publicly. Okay. So that sort of fueled it. But uh, no, I think I'm out of it now. Uh, whether I rock up in it later on down the road, I don't know. Okay. But um, but yeah, I'd be happy to pop in, help them out when they're busy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, do a shift. <laughs> but, um, just pop around. Uh, you know, you're, just, uh, you're bald. You might as well just drop in when they're uh, when they're inundated. Do you know what I mean? Give them a hand at the tills. <laughs> uh, that'd be nice. No, but they've got a nice guy. They've got, I think they've got Anya uh, from Split, and they've got yeah. they've got lovely Maisie Williams, who's gorgeous and just so sweet. So that'd be a nice bunch. I don't know if Storms in it. I'm not quite sure. I don't okay. really know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's I think they're be... filming in Toronto. Or Boston, I'm not sure. One of the two. Something like just, that. Anyway. Just pin it down a bit. They were meant to be filming in Montreal at the same time as us, which would have just been mayhem. Okay. To have two X-Men cast running about Montreal getting hammered. <laughs> that would be it's bad enough we won, mate. <laughs> Precisely. Would it be paintball? Was it Was it paintball guns you were it's filming with? all or? of it, mate. It's yeah. been paintball, it's been BB, it's been gat guns, it's been potato spud, spud guns, it's been punching games, it's been thinking golf, it's been football, it's been... Go-karting. We did pugilistic go-karting, which was, <laughs> mate, honestly, it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my life. I rammed Nick Holt about 40 mile an hour head on. <laughs> it's just, it just crazy. Um, golf cart racing. Just, yeah, we've had a lot of craziness. And the insurance guys, they know about this, so they don't know about this. This was all in between movies. <laughs> this is, yeah, not while we were filming. We did most of this all. the day after we stopped shooting. <laughs> That's going to be interesting because this is, of course, the first time you've you've you know your your contract expired. I think it was fairly public, mm-hmm. but, you know. So yeah, no, we were all quite clear yeah, about it. Like you were no, we're out of contract, clear, we're yeah. done. <laughs> but then, just when you thought you were out, they you know, they pull you back in. <laughs> what what yeah. is it? What is it about this one that's brought you back in? Or what, is it is it Charles or is it I, Kinberg Charles, or what is it? The thing that attract the thing that only the only thing that ever gets me, I think, is is the character. Don't get me wrong. I think when I think Danny Boyle, when he offered me a job, I was extremely excited just because it was Danny Boyle. But um, and if it was Ken Loach offering me something, I'd do it no matter what it was. Yeah. But um, but it's uh, usually the character that I'm attracted to, and I don't really care who's directing it. But it is definitely the character this time. There is a cool thing happening with him. But I'm also excited to get to work with Simon. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've always worked closely with Simon as a writer and a producer. He's always been there uh, every day, and he's been massively collaborative and um, has helped bring us on with where we are with the, the the characters and stuff as well. But now that he's directing, I'm very excited to 
to work with him and see what he brings to it as a director, not just as a writer-producer, yeah. but as a director-writer-producer, the triple threat. Well, yeah. Um, it's going to be like David Leitch. He's going to be, he's going to be, he's, he's, he'll have been on so many sets over the years. Yeah, I know. become a sponge. I hope so. I'm thinking yeah. he will, but I know the crew are enjoying working with him as well. So, uh, so that's exciting. And it's just a great bunch of people. We love each other. We're a great company of mm. people. Um, even new additions that came in last year kind of slotted in seamlessly. So I'm excited to go back. Yeah. I didn't think we would. I thought it would be three movies and then and then out. But um, but yeah, if it can if it continues even further, which I think they're planning to, yeah. then great, fantastic. And then I'm hugely, tremendously, genuinely, throbbingly excited about Glass. Oh yeah, no, so uh, I. I know as... nothing though. I haven't even received the script yet. <laughs> nights like nights like released it on Twitter. I'm on my second draft and blah blah. blah. I'm like, well, slip me something, pal. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not talking about compliments. Just. <laughs> Or the tongue, just give me the script. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to see how it all plays out and what is it? Am I like the bad guy? Am I not the bad guy? Am I... Yeah. Do you team up with the other bad guy? Do I team up with Glass? Do, you I, know? Team up with, do I team up with David Dunn? Do, mm-hmm. I, do I go to Dunn's stores? Do I go to, <laughs> do I go to Dunn's the well, Bakers in Church End? There's a niche reference. So there's, a, there's another niche reference. My God. <laughs> You're going deep now. Deep cuts. I know, I know. Um... <laughs> Uh, deep cuts, cut glass. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so no, I'm excited to see, it. and I'm also excited to see how Anya plays in it as well. And yeah. is she going to be the MacGuffin almost or something? Or, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I just don't know what happens. There's a world of possibilities. Well, there was 23, 24 characters now in Kevin Wendell Crumb. Yeah, and we only got to see what nine of them. Uh yeah, eight or nine. Yeah, eight or nine. So, by my if my maths are correct, that's another forty-seven options for you to play <laughs> in this one. Yeah, there's a lot, and I know he's he wants me. He'd show a lot more this time but uh, you showed enough last time yeah no I know I know I know I mean I just the only thing is I don't want to make a gimmick of him do you know what I mean yeah of course Um, because he's he's an interesting character he's got his own truth and his own his own integrity going on Um, but it is a condition that people actually suffer with so I don't want to just make it exploitative do you know what I mean yeah Um, and I certainly don't want to just make him the bad guy no of course but hugely hugely excited uh as you definitely don't know what's happening. He, you, you know, he hasn't. He hasn't just slipped you the script, and you're just no. I, I truly don't know. I would give you hints if I did. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I don't know what is going on, and I'm very, very, very keen to see what goes on because it's just such a different dynamic as well. Mm. Like the first one was like three, you know, relatively unknown actors, uh, young actresses, um, a four. Uh, uh, a former colleague of Knights, Betty Buckley from I think The Happening, who's like a Broadway star, and me, and that was it. Do you know what I mean? It's like it was. <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? But next time we've got we've got Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, uh-huh. Anya and me. It's like that's a different prospect. Even so, just the four of you in a room just talking for ninety minutes, I'd be on board, mate. Just us doing a podcast talking that's- about. Talking about acting and done stores would be <laughs> would be enough. We brought it full circle. Well, uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you is, all right, so you do have some downtime on X Men and Glass, and you do decide to start this podcast. All right, okay. About acting, who's the first person on on the other side of the mic? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. What? Yeah, just one of my favourite actors. Would you get him to dance? Yeah, I would. <laughs> wouldn't really work on a podcast though. That's the thing; you got to adapt to the format. I don't know. Maybe we just put 
the, the microphone up to my heart and <laughs> see it beating faster as he gyrates and, we, and that would be the fun thing uh, Sam Rockwell um, uh, who else who else who else Sam Rockwell uh, Ben Wishaw Aye, good choice. Uh, and the final, the final member of the first episode of my podcast would maybe be Whacking Phoenix. That would be, that would be amazing. It's an interesting bunch, I think. That would be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, be, uh, it would also be the last episode of your podcast. I've got a feeling, but why? <laughs> I think they just kill each other. Or? Yeah, all, no, all four of you would just, you would just burn up the hotel room wherever, wherever it was you would be doing it. I think so. It would I, be the definitive <laughs> podcast. You wouldn't need anything else after that. <laughs> I think so. I'm not sure. Who else? Maybe Judy Dench, actually. Oh, oh man, I just want to keep going now. <laughs> no, Kate Winslet. I'd have Kate Winslet on there for a second. Kate Winslet. There you go. Okay, so that's episode two. Right, brilliant. Uh, next time you're on the Empire podcast, which will be for, I presume, X-Men. Uh-huh. At least I've got one episode in the can. One episode? What do you mean? Do, do an episode and have... All oh, right, okay. Yeah, do All an right. episode, yeah. All right, well, why don't that's I host your... one? Why don't I host one for host Empire? One. There you go. There we go. And you know, we can do, that can be instead of doing this. <laughs> you know, it's legally binding, right? Yeah. It's all good. Sweet. Sweet. James, thanks. All right, mate. Cool. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. That was James McAvoy. Uh, big fan of that film. David Leach is, of course, the co-director of uh, John Wick 1, alongside Chad Stahelski, and he had to bow out of the sequel to do Atomic Blonde. Um, love the 80s vibe of that. Uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better action sequence anywhere this mm. year. So is it? Originally mm. called The Coldest City, wasn't it? That's the graphic novel. It's based on the graphic novel called The Coldest City. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. The film was called that for a while. I think, oh, is, right, it the, yeah. is it the staircase fight? That, that I haven't seen the film yet. The staircase fight is pretty fucking impressive. Is that the, is that the action scene you're talking there's about? There's loads. I mean, there's, it's full of them. It's, right. it's full of them. I mean, it's, it's not dissimilar to John Wick in, in that regard. They do really broad master shots, one shot, all the way through, just incredibly well choreographed. I mean, Keanu's slightly different because he's actually quite an accomplished martial artist, so he just sort of hammers his way through John Wick. I don't, I mean, Charlize Theron's got some experience, but I don't think she's, you know, a ninja. Uh, I think she's been extremely well trained through these sequences, but it's really, really fucking good. It's mm. essentially um, Joan Wick. It, well, yeah, I did use that gag oh, when I came God. out. Yes. Oh, <laughs> First base gag, number oh, one. God. Uh, but it's out next week, so I guess we'll get into it properly in, uh, in next week's pod. So, yeah. But if you go to the cinema before next week's pod, which you might, uh, mm. maybe go and see that. Mm. It's an option. Right. On with the news. How? It's not out. Well, it'll be out on Wednesday. It'll be out on Wednesday. It's out on Wednesday. The next it? pod right, is now okay. until Friday. Come on, Phil. You didn't up. explain that. Stop pod explaining. <laughs> you didn't explain that. <laughs> Good soundtrack? Is it right. a good soundtrack? Yes, because it's eighties tastic. Yeah. Although I believe there are a couple of anachronisms oh on there because it's set at the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I'm sure at least one of the songs came out or uh, was released after the fall of the wall. Does so. it have Scorpions' "Winds of Change"? I don't. I don't, I don't me, know. I can't, the, anthem. I, the names of songs escape me. My memory doesn't work that way. Okay. Uh, but it is very eighties tastic, uh, and I enjoyed it. So yes, news. On with the news. News, news, news. Uh, the Can biggest we, news. Well, the biggest news. No, no, is, no. no, 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 no Wait. The biggest news this week uh, is the announcement that Jack Thorne has been called in to rewrite episode nine, uh, which is which is. Wait, what were you going to say? I'll be the judge. Clint Howard is is in the Han Solo movie. Yeah, Clint Howard's. Well, we were going to mention that. I'm not. It's the big news. Yeah. Okay. Well, is he chewy? No, he's not. Let's move on. This is this is because Ron Howard essentially tweeted that Clint (laughs) would be. No, we won't be disappointed. Clint will make an appearance. Let's okay. come back to that. Let's, 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 yeah. 
Okay, okay. So Jack Thorne has been called in to rewrite episode nine, which is quite a shock, really. Uh, the film, as we all know, has been written by Colin Trevorrow and his co-writer, Derek Connolly. Uh, but it's now been handed to Thorne, mm. who is the man who co-wrote Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. He's done work on Skins. He also uh, wrote short-lived but very excellent TV uh, supernatural sort of horror show, The Fades, Right. which I watched a few years ago and very much enjoyed. Mm. Um, what do we think of this? Because this is, I mean, this is either, okay, fair, you know, they've just, uh, you know, Colin's got focus on directing, so he's coming to help out, or it's a, we didn't like your draft, we're mm. getting this guy in to do it again. Yeah, we just don't know at this point, do we? I no, mean, we don't. I, I, it's not necessarily a shock, because I think most productions of this size get quite a lot of people drafted in to do a pass on it. I, mm. That's the sense I get from, mm. I know there's a lot of, I know Christopher McQuarrie, for one, does a lot of uncredited work on stuff. Yeah. Um, the fact he's been announced maybe means it's more substantial. Um, I don't know. We just don't know. But, it, I mean, I, it doesn't shock me that they're getting another writer involved because I imagine that happens a lot. They just, you know, they're at the point where they're trying to get it put as, as good as possible. Well, Michael Arndt started off doing The Force Awakens yeah. and essentially couldn't turn it around in time, so Kasdan and Abrams did it. Although Ryan Johnson's the only one pretty much who, who did Last Jedi, he's done that start to finish. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just don't know whether it's you know just just freshening up the dialogue or yeah. or more it's substantial adding knob gags, adding knob gags, taking out dinosaurs. Maybe he's bringing <laughs> in dinosaurs, and that, that would be a problem. Yeah, no, t- t- Colin, stop it! <laughs> he's an interesting <laughs> no I, more Gallimimus. Um, he's an interesting choice for it, though, isn't he? Because he's very much of the sort of British yeah. television school. He's very well thought of in this country. Mm. I, I don't know how, what his profile is in in Hollywood, but. You know, he did the This Is England TV spin-offs. Um, maybe he'll take this one grittier. Maybe. The tales of intergalactic alcoholism and <laughs> drug abuse. Who knows? I mean, it, I think it's one of these things where, you know, people are looking for, you know, after the Lord of Miller thing, people are looking for sort of trouble in paradise when it comes to Star Wars. So uh, people, oh God, what's gone wrong? Jafar yeah. fucking it up. Uh, and I don't think that's probably the case at all. I but, think it is, you know, it's m- more than likely something logistical. These are the things that happen on just about every major film and just you don't always get hear reported about it. Yeah. because yeah. they're not of that profile. I guess if Ron Howard had, had suddenly come in, then maybe you'd start to be a bit more worried. Or Glenn yeah. Howard. For that. <laughs> Glenn <laughs> Howard is now directing <laughs> episode nine. If Ron Howard just takes, starts taking over every Star Wars project like at the last minute. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I... I I really like Jurassic World. Uh, I may be slightly biased because you, you I, I, I pop up for mm-hmm. an unmemorable one-second cameo. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's probably in a good place um, because they've been on it for so long. Yeah. I mean, it's not. This is not very early in the stage. I think they've probably been. The script has been around for a while. So yeah. I imagine it's a pass. An interesting wrinkle, then, but not something that we should be concerned about. Unlike. Clint Howard. No, no one should be concerned about Clint Howard unless you've seen his film The Ice Cream Man, <laughs> which has traumatized me. This is his uh, 1995 or 6 horror in which Clint Howard roams the land in an ice cream van eating people and mixing them up and he serving screams, them as ice cream. You scream, we all scream. For the ice cream man. Yeah. I, it's upsetting. Wow. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I, I think this is like the this is going to be the 18th film that Ron Howard has put his brother Clint in. There's nepotism and then there's nepotism <laughs> and this is ridiculous. Yeah. Can you get me into Jurassic World 2? <laughs> I can't get myself into Jurassic World 2. Um, but, um, no. Okay. okay. Disappointing. But, you know, I, it's, it's nice. Favourite Clint Howard moment? Oh, film? I, I, I definitely don't have a favourite Clint Howard moment. <laughs> he's awesome in Austin Powers. He is awesome in Austin Powers, yes. Um, oh, and enough. obviously he's popped up in loads of Star Trek episodes, so I'm surprised. Oh, oh, yeah, but with various amounts of prosthetics glued to his face. Well, um, anyway. Yes, we love Clint Howard. 
Love a bit of Clint. Um, also, the first image of Zazie Beats as um, Domino was tweeted out. Domino Harvey. Domino Harvey. Do- I, my name is Domino Harvey and I'm a bounty hunter. Uh, yes. Uh, That's very rich, D. Grant. Yeah, oh, thanks. Uh, this is from Deadpool 2. Uh, Domino, for those of you who are not Ofe with the character, first appeared in X-Force number 8 in March 1992. I have the first edition at home if anyone wants to buy it off me. Uh, as a member of the Wild Pack, later renamed the Six Pack, if you can stomach it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, her her power is uh, luck. She has probability altering powers, and she kind of appears here in a kind of uh, it's kind of a black exploitation vibe, isn't it? That she's got, mm. uh, and you see her kind of in the same way we first saw Deadpool reclining in front of that fire yeah. uh, on a on a, whatever it is like a bear skin rug. It's her reclining in front of the fire on a Deadpool skin rug. I kind of love that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think the the original was inspired by a Burt Reynolds Playgirl yes. uh, pullout. It was, um, but yeah, they're going meta with it. <laughs> <laughs> like she's now on. I didn't know whether it was meant to be a Deadpool rug or whether it's actually him. It's that's a flat crushed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was. Yeah, that was Ryan Reynolds. That was a great reveal. Um, but yeah, no, I'm excited. I don't. Unlike you, I don't know the character as well, mm. so I don't know quite where they're going with it. But yeah, she's like, less stylized in this. But actually, I think it's it's fun. It fits the Deadpool vibe quite well. I think it, does, like, it, it works with the aesthetic. Does this imperil the future of a Negasonic teenage Negasonic Warlord. teenage warhead? Uh, not necessarily. Well, she was only a supporting character anyway. She could she could still return. Okay. Uh, she was not a love interest, though. She's like 10 or no, something. No, no, so, no. Um, whereas actually Domino is uh, uh, a uh, former squeeze of Cable oh, in the nice. comics. So I don't know whether that's something they'll You could say she was Cable-tied. <laughs> that, that doesn't, doesn't <laughs> you, you shouldn't, but you could. Yep. Uh, yes. So that's a thing. So, yeah, Domino. Yeah. And uh, in other news, <laughs> uh, assuring the high production values and quality of the highly anticipated Transformers spin-off Bumblebee, John Cena, the Doctor of Thugonomics himself, uh, will be uh, headlining. Mm. I don't care. What's next? <laughs> I mean, look, I, 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 I want to just chip in a slightly weak defence of this film. Um, I am not a fan of Transformers. Any right-minded person does not enjoy the current run of Transformers films. They're not very good. When you say but, the current run, do you mean like all of them <laughs> well, from the beginning? Uh, I think we all quite enjoyed the first one. A bit. No, no I, I did. Most, I of, did, most I did. of us enjoyed it, um, yeah. if only for the kind of novelty value, but also Shia LaBeouf was fun. And it has now degenerated into Mark Wahlberg running around yelling at bits of CG. Um, but yeah, Travis Knight is directing this. He is. Kubo's the Cuba, Travis the, Knight. The Leica uh, animation genius, I'd mm. say. I mean, he's he's really great. Everything he's done has been interesting. And so he's the reason I'm I'm giving this one a chance. I mean, Hayley Steinfeld's in it as well. It's set in 1987, so it's actually a prequel. Uh, presumably because after the last night, no one knows what the fuck is happening. <laughs> and they've essentially had to reset the chronology. But the whole idea is and forgive me if this sounds familiar, they're working on an old car, it turns out to be Bumblebee, and he comes... Isn't that just the first film? Because isn't that... Because is, the, the Witwicky gets yeah. the car, doesn't mm. he? And then it's a living car, and it's, it's the same film again. He's never been my favourite, even among... I mean, I don't like any of them, but the robots in, in these films, but... He he's the one who peed on John Turturro in the second one, right? Oh, who who knows? He doesn't. He's just, the one who doesn't talk. Yeah, but he is the last. Oh no, I nearly like, spoiled the last is night. He's the Sorry. one with <laughs> snippets of. Uh, yeah, I t- he's I, kind of the dog, isn't he? I suppose. Yeah, uh, he's the, he's the lovable the hound lovable. of the Transformers. I've not warmed him yet, but look, no, I just. In Travis Knight, we trust. Uh, the casting of John Senna doesn't inspire massive confidence because it just feels like oh. 
they've got another Mark Wahlberg type person. I don't know. I just thought the casting for this might be a bit different and a bit more interesting. Um, I don't know. I mock, but he was funny in Trainwreck. He was good in Trainwreck. Mm. He was good in Trainwreck. I did. Th- okay, let's give it a chance because we don't yeah. know who he's playing yeah. or whatever. But as a leading man, I guess there are other, maybe other actors that I'd be more kind of excited. Like about. all of them. Um, uh, right. Excellent. Uh, it what's would be next? remiss of us not to mention um, that Darren Aronofsky's mother, or uh, as the title was read with the exclamation mark, mother, is uh, got a trailer. Um, is it good? So now we know kind of what it is because there was a bit of a, a <laughs> bit of a. Well, it hasn't it, cleared up much. No, it hasn't really, but you at least have a sense of the genre. Explain, I haven't seen the, it. The film has an exclamation mark at the end of Mother, and if, if trailers could have an exclamation mark at the end, <laughs> this one would, because it basically is madness. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Badem. Uh, it's very much a psychodrama. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, the, the kind of husband and wife and somebody comes to the house, and, mm. and they, they're they not really giving much away. There's, quite, there's not a lot out there about this one, but it looks like it's... You know, it's pitched at quite a high frequency, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it looks very much like a kind of Black Swan-esque film, but maybe even more intense than that. Okay. Yeah. So Interesting. It's not cleared up much, but it has at least given, because up until that point, I don't think anyone had an idea. They thought maybe it was going to be a, a frothy rom-com, potentially, but not. A knockabout sex things. comedy. Yes. Okay. Um, another um, trick. Another trailer? Another trailer, quickly. Uh, Mindhunter. Uh, n- no, you mean Mindhunter, for the title is in all caps. Yep, not to be confused with Mindhunters. The Christian the, Slater. The Christian <laughs> Slater trapped on an island with a serial killer. It's another serial killer thing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have the exact same plot as Detox. <laughs> very possibly. I haven't seen Detox. Fair enough. Sylvester Stallone, I believe, was trapped in rehab, and it's just the same. Anyway, carry on. Trapped in rehab? Yeah, he go, he go, I think he goes on a rehab retreat, possibly on an island, and one of them's killing them. It was a long time ago, <laughs> and it's dreadful. Uh, um, yes, but um, Mindhunter, Mindhunter, sorry, singular, is uh, David Fincher, uh, his new Netflix show, which is coming in October, um, and it's really about these FBI serial killer profile profilers who are kind of going out and teaching normal policeman how to think like a serial killer and it's got um, it's got two more or less unknown actors at the top of it uh, Jonathan Groff and Holt McCallany um, and the trailer is kind of what you'd expect from maybe a David Finch thing it's like kind of got a bit of a Zodiac vibe it's looks like a bit of a slow burner but really stylish and interesting looking I'm on board okay good I haven't watched that either but yeah. I'm sure it's great yeah um, I have seen the Hans Zimmer is, uh, yeah. has jumped on board to provide um, additional music for Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, interesting one, then. This, cause yes, because this is Johan Johansson's mm. score, and yet it's been zimmered. Yeah. I don't know quite what to make of this. I, Again, is it a scheduling thing? Because the film's two months out no, at this point. No, I, I don't know. I'm slightly worried about this. But it's, I feel like Vangelis, 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 Vangelis. Vangelis his um, score is so instrumental to the success of mm. the mood of that of the, of the original film, I, to, for them to be fiddling around with the music now, like they don't really know exactly what they're aiming for, mm. just worries me slightly. And there is another kind of murmur that because the film hasn't been entered into Venice, the Venice Film Festival would be an obvious place with the timing for it to go, um, that maybe there's not so much confidence in it. Well, but, I you know, who knows at this point, it's still a way, a way out. Um, but yeah, the music, I just I always, from the beginning, I was like, the, how do you do it without that score? Mm. And uh, you need to almost start the process with thinking of the music, yeah. and, and and they seem to be ending it that way. The, Bla- the Blade Runner me. score is kind of a thing separate to the film. I probably listened to the score 
hundred times. Yeah, much like more not, than you've seen the film. And I've probably seen the film uh, probably about ten times. Mm. But still, the score is its own thing. It's mm. it's you just listen to it independently. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's amazing. And yeah, I I do wonder why whether there was ever talk of him doing it, coming back and doing it again. Or, but yeah, it does make me worried because that's so important. Yeah. It does look like they've got the visuals right from the trailer. I think it it's got that Blade Runner feel, but the music kind especially, of especially especially. I mean, look, I love Hans Zimmer. I know the, the Dunkirk score kind of polarised people. But, but the but, Dunkirk score put me in mind of Johan Johansson. Yeah. Uh, because it was like a wall of sound design, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. But the, this was sort of thing he tends to get parachuted into a little bit. You know, and I got a vision of him turning up with like a, literally a toolkit going, right, what leads, you know, it's what like the he's doing with his guitar. And <laughs> yeah, just, and I just, I don't know, there's something. If you have I a soundtrack, if that, no one else can help. Yeah. And if you can find him. Zimmer. Call him. He's got basically he's got going for gold. He can do that for you. <laughs> he can do. He can do blam. I mean, it kind of makes sense though in a way. His Inception score, I think, has got. Oh my god! Yeah. I mean, probably my yeah, my, definitely my favorite score from like the last twenty years. But it's got that emotion and that kind of weird, kind of ethereal, otherworldliness that the Blade Runner score has. Mm. It's obviously a different type of of, of uh, soundtrack, but mm. I don't know that if if it's Inception, Hans Zimmer. No, right? I. Th- you, no, I don't know. It seems to me like he would have to be building on what what. Yeah, no, I'm not saying he doesn't break but, out the synths. I'm no, sure there's yeah, going to be it's yeah. going to be Synth City, but um, I don't know. I, I yeah, mm, it's, I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. He hasn't got long to yeah. get his synths Hurry in order. Up. Get your synths in order. Well, if anyone can do it, Zimmer can do it. Uh, yeah. Um, um, in other news, Vin Diesel is resurrecting Miami Vice. Did you read this? <laughs> No, I read uh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he is, and he isn't. He's produce exec, exec producing a TV show which is going to pilot, which is a, a new, an yeah. updated, non eighties set Miami Vice, Crockett and Tubbs, in the twenty first century. Yeah. presumably. it's already better than the Michael Mann movie. <laughs> are you? Are you a big hater? Like, you, do you not like that film really? in any way, shape, or form? No. Why? Because it's dreadful. It's it's not good. No, it's it is so good. Dreadful. It's not. It's not among his best, but it it's a good to film. Cuba for a mojito. Yeah, we've all done it, Nick. Um, <laughs> the, my biggest problem with that is the sound mix in Miami Vice is fucking awful. Like it's really muddy, and you can't make out massive sections of the. My dialogue. problem with it is everything else. <laughs> So between us, you found the pure, perfect storm of hatred for that movie. It's very blue. I, I've only it seen it the one blue. time, but I remember it being very blue and very just people. I just have a vision of Colin Farrell with like one button on his shirt done up, like yeah. just chest and like blazer and just wrong. I mean, if they'd made it five, six years later, it would have been a Lord and Miller kind of jump, jump street scenario. But he went instead for like just the heaviest level of bombast. Yeah, and I'm just not a fan. I know there are people that defend and love that film, and that's fine, absolutely. You know, um, but I'm saying they're wrong. I do, I do, well. I, I quite like the line. Uh, there's undercover, and then there's which way is up. And I've repeated that. That's a line that someone says in the film, and I have repeated that a lot because it's such a stupid, brilliant line. Oh, it's a great line. I mean, what? Yeah, what next? Like Mike, Michael Mann's. Hawaii Five-O. See, you joke, because Hawaii Five-O, the rebooted TV series, went ran for a while. I don't think it goes anymore. Equally, the Lethal Weapon TV series has been renewed for a second season. So Mm. it is quite possibly the end of days. Um, (laughs) And this this will join them. There's a... I think it's... I want to say it's going to Stars, which is the network that does... Mm. Uh, well, some good stuff. I think it does American Gods, but uh, I want to say also it's the same place where Stephen King's The Mist TV series, interesting, which is not good. Uh, is though I could be making that up. Yeah. Uh, speaking of TV, uh, the Divergent 
TV series is definitely going ahead because this has been in, in sort of spinning development hell for a while. Uh, you will recall there was Divergent, mm. then Allegiant, and then Ascendant did not ascend. Is there one called Convergent? Or is no, that, there's is no there's Convergent, uh, but they were going to do Detergent. a potentially a spin-off, which presumably would have been called Tangent. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they've, uh, they weren't sure if the TV series was going to be, uh, would it be a TV movie of Ascendant? Will it be a TV extension of the story? Will it be a spin-off thing? Uh, none of us really care, and is nobody that- Really nice. Is it the one that Kate Winslet was in? Yes, yes, where it was. Got all, right. yes, where they're all everyone sorted according to like yes. personality traits. Oh my word! But then they change yes. the form of the adjective, so it's yeah, so it's um Be- right because you've got more that you can do. You've got more than one personality. Yeah, so setting. it's dauntless and erudite, and then I can't remember the other ones, but it, yeah. It, yeah, it's yeah. I had a really really. I had a, a train crash interview with Kate Winslet about that one. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Well, it wasn't okay. Train crash is exaggerating, but it, we had a short time together, um, probably uh, fortunately for her, and uh, and I had to sort of concertina my questions, and I didn't really get to talking to her about the film. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. She called me a nutter. She was like, "You're not going to ask me about the film at all." And I went, "Well, I wasn't planning on it." And she went, "You're a nutter." And I was no. like, "Well, they gave me three and a half seconds. Yeah, I, I didn't have time. Plus, I didn't add. It's not. It's terrible. It's going to end up on television mm. because I knew back then. I could feel it. Um, not disrespecting your newspaper. I feel that story. I feel that like we knew that, didn't we? No, it's been. It's, no. That's what I'm saying. It's been banging on for ages, but apparently they have confirmed it's going it's ahead. Whereas it's, it's come back. It's come back. Right. James, on behalf of everyone, thank you for bringing it. Up. Thank <laughs> you for again. bringing that up again. Like, yes, this is great. Yesterday's it, yeah. is, it is um, great. I don't mean to bring the mood down, but there are a couple of people um, who passed away in the okay. last week, and okay. uh, it would be remiss of us not to mention um, first Jean Moreau, who Jim Moreau rather, who is a um, a. a Store of the French New Wave. Um, she was in. Um, she was in Jules Le Gym. Um, she did not play Jules or Jim. Um, La Notte, Antonioni, and this is so in my eyes. But she was genuinely a great of that of that period of cinema. And um, I would just say that if you haven't seen um, Louis Malle's Elevated to the Gallows or Lift to the Scaffold, it's one of those films with about seven different names. Um, check it out. It's an amazing movie. Um, it's got Miles Davis recorded the score, I think, in like a night in the way that those sort of jazz musicians could do. Um, it's really very cool. Um, it's a, it's got a great premise um, uh, in which a crime has been committed, but the people that perpetrated, I think, have locked themselves out of the apartment they need to get back into. Um, so it's a kind of a slow motion um, noir kind of thriller, but with a French new wave twist. So check that out. That's a great would be a great way to remember her. Um, and Sh- Sam Shepard. Um, last Thursday died, mm. and um, he's someone that kind of is very much in our world, obviously as an actor, but also in the world of theatre as a playwright, um, and he was a screenwriter as well. Um, I especially love him in the right stuff, in which he played Chuck Yeager, yes, the uh, the pioneer of um, of um, space travel, like a, a genuine American hero, and uh, Sam Shepard kind of was too. They didn't mm. get on that well, I think, when they first met. Um, and Philip Kaufman, the director of that movie, wrote a really nice obituary for Variety, remembering him. And uh, he sort of described him as, like, he was also kind of like a jazz musician as well himself, but kind of like a genuine cowboy. He worked on a ranch as a teenager, and he had a horse on the right stuff. More movie sets should have actors that have horses. I agree um, entirely. 
Apparently, he would just, they would be discussing scenes and he would just be lassoing furniture, <laughs> <laughs> which, um, which, is, uh, which could be the most effective thing ever. But I think in Sam Shepard's case, probably wasn't. So, yeah, Days of Heaven, The Right Stuff, Paris, Texas, and more recently, um, Bloodline, the Netflix show. Yes, I haven't seen he was that. the sort of patriarch in that. Um, and Mud, the Jeff Nichols movie, is very good. Yes. Um, so he was doing great work right up until the end of his life and uh, he, he died pretty young really he was born in 1943 so you know in his, in his 70s so um, a sad loss in both cases he won a Pulitzer Prize for his his, yeah. uh, his writing did he? Um, one of the plays he wrote uh, Buried Child but yeah he was a real renaissance man I think and he had a kind of a soul, very soulful presence I think in yeah. all the films he appeared in you've seen the right stuff haven't you? I've seen the right yeah. stuff it's yeah. such a good movie I just if you haven't seen the right stuff that would be I would rectify that immediately. One of the main, not just him, but you know Scott Glenn and uh, one of the main influences for Interstellar. Right, yeah, uh, it's a genuinely brilliant film, and uh, fully recommend that people watch that. And also, he was in Black Hawk Down, but everyone was in Black Hawk Down. That's so true. I, that's I was in Black Hawk Down. Mm. Ed, Black Hawk Ed, Down. Edmund's early appearance, yes, yeah. Edmund. Private Edmund from that one. <laughs> yeah, he got killed at the beginning. Um, and mm-hmm. that, does anyone have any more news? Unless anyone wants to talk about Ian Machine in Hellboy. There's one more snippet of news, which is that um, Jorge Gutierrez, who directed um, the uh, Book of Life, which yes. is a, a Guillermo del Toro animation, I like animation. The Book of Life a lot. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but um, I know it, it, it covers the same ground as Pixar's new film Coco, yes, it does. different films, and he is directing a new Lego movie called The Billion Brick Race. And uh, mm. yeah, I mean, how do we feel? Do we feel like there should be more Lego movies, or are there enough no. Lego movies? The Lego movies leave me largely cold. Uh, I'm afraid well, we so. We need Emma Thrower here to represent because uh, she's a huge Lego enthusiast. I always feel slightly guilty. I don't enjoy them more. I was really looking forward to Lego Batman and I must say, I, I didn't. No, I didn't did love I. it and I didn't love the Lego movie but I realise we're probably in the minority. Yeah, everyone else in the office seems to think, well, that everything is awesome. Um, I'm, I'm personally not of that opinion. But they're fine. I mean, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just not the second coming. Like, like Helen will squee to the high heavens whenever you mm. mention a Lego movie and I'm mm. just like, Please, I'm a grown man. I know that they're not. (laughs) Says the man with a collection of swords. Shut up, Nick. Uh, And finally, we will mention that Ian McShane has joined Hellboy, The Rise of the Blood Queen. Uh, He's playing Professor Trevor Bloom, which was the um, the John Hurt role in the um, Guillermo del Toro versions of Mm. Hellboy, uh, which is Hellboy's kind of adoptive father. That's interesting. Uh, Obviously, David Harbour is... um, Hellboy himself, directed by Neil Marshall. And Mike Mignola, who's the guy who created Hellboy, he's, uh, I think, on scripting detail for this. So, yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's the thing, because Guillermo was... It seems like less than a year ago that Guillermo finally said he was never going to be able to make Hellboy 3. It just wasn't going to happen. Mm. And then this has kind of emerged phoenix-like from the ashes. We, we shall see. This is Neil Marshall directing. Neil Marshall directing so I'm excited about it. We were just talking about The Descent in the office earlier today. Yes, and we how great The Descent is, and... His Game of Friends episode is is terrific. So I'm he's excited. Like I'm actually yeah, really excited about seeing what Neil Marshall can do. Mm-hmm. Um, that that conversation was let brilliant. down slightly when someone said he hasn't done anything good since Chicago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Rod Marshall did not direct was me. I was a it was a genuine I misspoke. I didn't yeah. actually no, think no, no, no. that Rob Neil Marshall, director of Doomsday mm. and Chicago. I would I see Rob Marshall's no. The Descent with the singing goblins? So would I. Yeah, that mm. would be great. Uh but no, this came about because we were saying, and this nearly became this week's question on the podcast, I nearly hijacked it and made it this one, which was what has the film had that has most scared you since you've been working at Empire? 
across that because that rules out the omen and alien and all of the really scary stuff. Uh, and Nick pointed out the descent. Uh, and obviously the point with that is even if you took out the goblins, mm. just the claustrophobia of it is absolutely bare bollock terrifying. Uh, when she gets trapped beneath, uh, I mean, it's just, oh, Christ. I was squirming. Yeah, same here. That, yeah. It's a hell of a good film. Um, yeah, and yeah, I don't know. Horror films don't scare me that much these days. It takes, it takes. I think you said that Phil. It needs another layer. Like you need claustrophobia and then horror. Green or you room. need grief and green. then horror. You need two layers of emotion. I say Green Room recently, actually, I and seen I it. didn't watch that on the big screen, but just even watching it on on uh, DVD or Blu-ray, really, it's that's an intense film. Mm. You should watch it's like that. Untidiness and then horror. In that case, <laughs> it's like, just some, disarray. Like, someone mop this place, please, immediately. I can't, I'm not, uh, not OCD, but I'm, you know, it makes me feel scratchy. Okay. Uh, or they're Nazis and then you could say. Oh yeah, Nazis yes, and horror, yes. That's dirty Nazis dirty. and then horror. <laughs> dirty, yes. Mm, You're yeah. dirty Nazis. Slob-like, slatternly Nazis. Quite. Right. Okay. Um, it's time for another interview, I think. Uh, this is John Nugent hanging with Brian Cranston to talk about his new film, Wakefield, uh, which is not... In fact, a hard-hitting drama about street thugs in West Yorkshire, uh, but rather the story of Howard Wakefield, a man who has a nervous breakdown and goes to live in an attic for several months. Something we've all done at one time or another. Brian Cranston, welcome to the Empire Podcasts. How thank are you. you? Good to be here. I'm great, thank you. Great. Um, we are we're here to talk about Wakefields, which I guess you would you describe it as the latest entry in the the Brian Cranston midlife crisis genre. <laughs> Get on train. <laughs> um, I suppose I don't I don't of course look at it in that in that sense is too objective. Um, what got to me about the script of Wakefield was that I related to this man as a man who is, you know, under a lot of pressure, as we all are. Our level of responsibility is high. Our, uh, we are expected to produce a lot more because of the technology that is available to us. Look, what would we do without our iPhones and our laptops? And I mean, we are governed by that. In fact, every waking moment we have, we're checking into to our lives maybe to even the the, the idea that I, I just want to get rid of a few of the emails get them off our plate so we don't have a tremendous amount to deal with um, we're just spinning plates so Howard Wakefield is a man who's a, a Manhattan lawyer very very uh, accomplished as a wife and two daughters and a nice home and yet he f- still feels like he's on the hamster wheel of life he's he wants to slow down. He wants to push the pause button and just relax, read a book, have a glass of wine, look at a cloud, go for a walk, be more in control of his own time and destiny. So he does. He, he puts himself in the attic and he, there he stays. And he's only intending to stay a day and it turns out to be two days. Okay, well, I'll re-enter at some point. And then it's three days, then it's a week, then it's more than a week, then it's then the longer it takes for him to confront the issue that was originally before him, the larger the chasm it becomes to be able to cross it. And I get that. I I see that we can exacerbate a problem simply by trying to avoid it. Was it an interesting acting challenge for you? Because as you say, you were in an attic, uh, essentially acting against no one for the majority of the film. And, and there's a lot of inner um, monologue as well. So you obviously spent a lot of time in a recording booth. What sort of challenge I did. Um, Robin Swicor, who wrote a beautiful script and directed uh, the movie, 
wanted me to do the narration three different times. One before we started, one during the time we were shooting, and one well afterward. And I thought it was curious and interesting to do that. Because, yes, naturally, it would seem right that your experience will change you uh, over the course of how you see the character and, and how you're going to present any line in a narration. And so we did. And I'm not sure exactly which lines that, are, that made it into the movie oh, were right. done before or during the middle or after. Uh, like many uh, children of my generation, I went to bed wearing Power Rangers pajamas. Um, so I'm always truly honoured to be sitting opposite the man who, who played Snizzard and and uh, most recently Zordon. You cynical bastard! <laughs> uh, I it, I didn't even remember the name of that character or really? the other characters that I play. Snizzard. Uh, Snizzard. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like a. a a condition that someone may have, you know, <laughs> it's got a case of the snizzards. Um, yeah, I, you know, when I was uh, first starting out, there was a lot of uh, voice work that I did. And one of the things of voice work was, was doing the dubbing from Japanese to English of the original television show, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. And just last year, I was able to kind of come full circle and play Zordon, yeah. the, the the face within the wall, who is kind of the mentor of the of the Power Rangers, and to be it in the in the big movie, and it was fun to do, very interesting, um, and a good story. I thought it, I thought I was very happy with the outcome of the show, and and it did well in theaters. Yeah, I mean, did you like it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, good. for me, you know, it was a very formative show. So, yeah. it, it, is it strange to be sort of part of that experience growing up for like two generations of children now? I guess. No, it's not strange for me. It's more strange for you to imagine yeah. that because it was your formative years. Yeah. It wasn't for me. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I could yeah. point to things and you'll go, "I've never heard of that." And say, well, yeah, <laughs> and that's what again getting back to some things we'll know and some things we won't. Yeah, we could get together a while from now and you'll go I remember exactly where we were what we met what we talked about and I go I have no idea what you're talking about and because it might have been important for one person and not the other right and uh, that's the glory and the curiosity of of the human experience I mean looking over your CV you have you're you're in so many you know classic TV shows um, uh, X Files for example and, and Baywatch you're in an episode of Baywatch do you, do you remember that oh sure <laughs> <laughs> most of those were just jobs yeah you know, just gigs Murder She Wrote and all yeah. those things and you know you're just when you first start out you're just looking for a job you need to pay your bills and and but with each job you get hopefully you're you're getting better and and more relaxed in mm. in your work and. Hopefully, that's the way it is. And um, you have to wait for a lucky break to get away from the characters like Clerk Number 2 or Bus Boy or Boy with Red Shirt. You know, those are the kind of character descriptions I had. (laughs) And it's like, oh, at some point I'd really like to have a name. Yeah. You know? And then you got a name in in Malcolm in the Middle, of course. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that... You, you whistled uh, during the episodes to earn royalties. Is that, is, can that be true? That is correct, sir. Uh, I, yes. Uh, in this litigious society that we live in, I got a call from the music supervisor of Malcolm in the Middle, and he said, you whistle and you hum in the show, and you should be uh, registered with ASCAP or BMI, the, the 
is the music writers, you right. know, the composers. And uh, I said, why? I said, well, technically it's music whenever you hum or whistle. So you should be the author of that and get paid as long as it's not a, an, a, an already existing song. And I go, yeah. please, all of my compositions are original. <laughs> I shall not plagiarize. And um, so I did. Yeah. And every time I got a check uh, of a couple hundred dollars, I would uh, throw a party for the crew. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's what it was for. (laughs) Then the crew kept coming up to me and going, hey, Brian, yeah. Don't you think Hal might be whistling during this scene? It's like, oh, you want a party? Yeah, I'd like to. It's like, okay. It's the whistling cottage yeah, industry. Right. Exactly. Have you considered releasing an album of your original compositions? There, right there. I just, so we owe you hundred dollars now. Uh, Twenty quid. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and then, obviously, I mean, we have to talk about the Breaking Bad. It's still like the, the peak of peak TV, really. Yeah. Um, and the forefront of people's minds. I mean, do you still get Heisenberg on the streets? What's sure. like the most common? Every day. Every, every day. Every day. Yeah. Uh, there's not a day I don't go out into public that I'm not recognized. Really? Mostly for that, but yeah. other things. And that's. Uh, you know, it was a side effect, really, of what I love to do. I never really thought about being famous or wanting. I never was the guy in the shower giving my acceptance speech. Or anything. It, it, I wanted to act. I loved the empowerment of acting and how yeah. it made me feel. To be able to move someone emotionally by something you say is extraordinarily powerful. Mm. And it made me feel important. And that's what I fell in love with doing. And... Uh, I was perfectly happy. My wife and I in a little house, a little baby, and we're going along. And and then all of a sudden fame came and it was like, oh, and I'm still to this day still trying to figure out how to reconcile with that. And hmm. I, I, I usually will wear a hat and glasses out in the public because I, I don't want to necessarily welcome any more attention. Sure. I have more attention than I ever thought I would or deserve. And that's fine. Um, But I'd like to just kind of live as normal a life as possible, if that's possible, Mm. and walk amongst people and talk to people who don't know me. I like that. Yeah. I do. I really, I I am overjoyed when I'm talking to someone who doesn't know who I am. What's the strangest uh, sort of fan encounter you've ever had? There was, um, you know, there's been some uh, art uh, that was created by... Breaking Bad and and um, the influence of Breaking Bad, and I think the tattoos and the body art. You know, oh, yeah. I have people come up to me and go, "Check this," and they'll pull down their pants and the and the, <laughs> well, maybe not their pants, but their trousers. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and show me a tattoo on their thigh or their calf. And then there was one guy who sent me a picture, and I th- I didn't know what it was, and I realized I stood back and I go, "Oh, he put it on his bum. He put a big picture of me on his bum." <laughs> So I don't know if that's flattering or insulting. <laughs> I mean, who's going to see that? That's what's confusing about tattoos. In the- I don't want to even ask that question. I don't want to know. It's tattoos are so permanent. Yeah. I have one. Oh, yeah? Uh, it's it's just odd for someone my age to have a tattoo, but I'll show it to you. Here it is. And it's oh, yeah. the, the, from the, oh, it's the Breaking Bag logo. The elemental symbol, ah. uh, BRBA. Yeah. And I, but you can see where I put it. I put it you, on the inside of my ring finger of my right hand. Yeah. 
Uh, and when my fingers are tight together, you don't see it at all. Right. Well, because I'm an actor. I don't yeah. want to. And someone said, why would you put it there? Why don't you put it on your on your wrist or something so people can see it? I go, yeah. no, it's for me. Yeah. It's when I catch a glimpse of it and I look down and I go, that show changed my life yeah. professionally. And I it, it makes me smile. Oh, that's lovely. That's really nice. That's probably more appropriate than than your ass as well. I would have thought. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to put that on. My wife would have to look at that, and that's yeah. not a good thing. <laughs> uh, we've got so much to talk about. I, I, what can you tell us about Electric Dreams? Um, this is new anthology series. Anthology so. series based on the short stories of Philip K. Dick. Yeah, and th- uh, Electric Dreams is really a, a, a beautifully eclectic. Uh, uh, cross-section of stories that all have relevance in today's life but they're steeped in the world of the future and um every episode is different every written by someone else directed by someone else acted by someone so you never know what you're going to get it's a real potpourri yeah and very proud of it it's going to premiere on channel four here in the uk uh in september and uh, I'm in one of the episodes as well. Uh, so that's it's a fantastic series. Um, I'm also coming back around that time to start rehearsal of a play that I'm doing at the uh, National Network. Uh, Network yeah. based on the Patty Chayefsky uh, screenplay yeah. network uh, back in the 70s. Yeah, that's very exciting. Um, I mean, that is this is your first time on a London stage, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And, you know, Network is, I mean, it's maybe the greatest satire ever written. So Interesting, though. I don't think it's a satire okay. anymore. Oh, it's it's surpassed. It's been surpassed by real life. By real life. Yeah. Look where we are yeah. in uh, what is entertainment, what is news, what is fake news, what is real. What is is it is it necessary to tell the truth? Or if you say something that's not the truth enough, yeah. does it become the truth? Yeah. And uh, we're we're living now in in very anxiety ridden times, and and there's a lot of cynicism, and doubt and distrust of our politicians and our political structures and and there's nationalism and and this cause you know and, and, a, and a, a real push for some purity and, and whatever that means and you know and we're not we're we're an internationally connected world now mm. um both technology and and monetarily and life has changed the one thing we can all count on for sure is that life will change you can either embrace it and go with it or you can fight it yeah but you won't fight it for long because it's going to change yeah that's interesting so uh, is your production set in the 70s then is it sort of looking at sat- uh, sort of satire as a relic of this story to be absolutely honest with you i'm not quite sure okay uh evo van hove is a brilliant director um, originally from brussels and um he is he is and imaginative fellow and and he comes up with some wonderful staging if you saw um view from bridge or the crucible here in in the uk uh you you realize the the scope of his work and i'm not sure where he wants to go with it yet i'm not even sure who else is going to be in this play with me yet so it's it's kind of on the it's still fresh and young yeah so, but I'll, I'm looking forward to it. We open at the National Theater in November and we run all the way through to the end of March. Wow, that's a long run. Yeah, yeah. Long run. I'm looking Exciting. forward to it. Though. 
Uh, I read somewhere when you were on Broadway, you um, took a vow of silence on your day off. Is, is that, will you be doing that for network? I mean, there's a lot of shouting. I'm going to do one now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it makes for terrible radio. <laughs> um, I talked to Audrey McDonald, beautiful actor, just phenomenal talent and um, she was doing the show Porgy and Bess and I said I did my play my three hour play out of New York um, for six weeks and I can already feel the strain on my system in my throat and she said well uh, my ear nose and throat doctor gave me a prescription of silence on Mondays you're one day off in Mm -hmm. the States Mondays and he said you're not to laugh chortle you're not to giggle you're not to whisper you're not to do anything with your voice you are to shut down completely and she did and i did it as a precautionary measure and it not only saved my my vocal box but it also saved my energy and you realize that if you're not talking at all during the day everything slows down and i got to a point where i just i didn't even I didn't look at my emails. I didn't do any of that. So I didn't waste any energy. That one day was for me. I needed to recharge my batteries and rest and eat well and take a nap and go for a walk and read a book and do things that are just kind of rejuvenating to the soul. Yeah. Because the following day you're back on the boards and, you know, giving it your all. Yeah, so, I mean, for Howard Beale, you'll have to be mad as hell every day for like four or five months. I mean, uh, yeah, you're going to need right. that time off. I'm going to need it. I'm yeah. going to need the rest, and I'm going to take it. Yeah. And I and by this stage in my career, I've I've worked long enough, almost 40 years, that I, I know when I need to rest and when I can go. Yeah. And so I just shut myself down when I know I need to to um, recharge the batteries. Brian Cranston, thank you so much for thank, the time. Good to see you. Thank you. Bye. And we're back, uh, just in time for this week's reviews. Now, I thought we were going to have an unprecedented situation here on the podcast this week, whereby none of us had seen a single film out this week. Uh, we are consummate professionals here at the Empire Podcast. Um, however, I then real- realized that Valerian actually came out on Wednesday, and we've all seen that. So we can talk about Valerian. Um, so we should probably start with that one, given that we have nothing resembling coherence to say about the others. Valerian, or to give it its full title, uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Uh, this is Luc Besson's long gestating adaptation of the French comic Valerian A, Loreline, uh, and stars Dane DeHaan as Valerian and Cara Delevingne as Loreline, a pair of space-based special agents. Uh, who are sucked into a mystery surrounding the fate of Alpha, a city made up of, yes, indeed, a thousand planets worth of species. Um, this is it's kind of a latter-day Babylon 5. Uh, it's a brightly coloured, batshit mental film. Well, um, yeah. It involves a psychic jellyfish, talking pterodactyls, Rihanna, and a small lizard that shits magic pearls. Now, uh, Nick, you're our resident Besson whisperer. What it did is you make not, it? It is not soid. Um as you'd expect from the man who brought us Lucy, yeah. uh, last his last film. Um, yeah, it's mad. I mean, this is a. I did interview Luke Besson for this uh, several times, and um, this has been the film he has wanted to make his whole career, basically, since he was a small boy. Uh, he got hooked on these the, the comic book, the Valerian and Loreline comic books, which were written by Pierre Christin, with um, uh, illustrations by Jean Claude Mezier, who ended up working on the Fifth Element with him. He did some of the designs for mm. that. 
but he has wanted to make that. And this is like the granddaddy or grandma of, of comic books. It's uh, influenced Star Wars, for one thing. There are uh, Han being um, frozen in carbonite and wheeled along is an image that's taken from one of the issues of this. I that did I've not know that. Yeah, it's one of those things that you look at it and so many sci-fi things have ripped stuff off from from this. So it's it's very, very iconic. Uh, it's very strange, it's got to be said. I read a whole bunch of these in, in preparation for my interviews and it's all it's absolute madness. So the film is a good representation of that, but then you add Luke Besson's distinctive, eccentric kind of style, what he does with like The Fifth Element is obviously a very eccentric film itself. It's a bizarre film and I I kind of have to applaud it for swinging for the fences. And uh, there is stuff in this film that is just utterly demented. Um, oh, oh, I know. <laughs> There's a scene I actually really like where there's a, a some kind of alien king who is being served a banquet, and there's a whole column of these alien like waiters basically bringing him bizarre dishes for him to sample, uh, and he decides he wants to eat um, Cara Delevingne's brain. Um, but it's just a bizarre, insane, screwball comedy kind of scene that you wouldn't see in any other kind of film. You know. N- nor should you really. Um, I'm, I'm a you bit, didn't like this. Did no, you? I, I thought it was rubbish. Uh, <laughs> I know. I really like uh, Luc Besson. I, I mean, Leon is one of my all-time favorite films. It's in my top five. I love The Fifth Element. Uh, I love loads of his stuff. Um, this though, it just felt like a mess. Like, like The Fifth Element is incredibly stylized, very visual, very vibrant. It's an amazing sort of vision of this kind of crazy offbeat future. But it makes coherent sense, uh, even if sections of it are written in a gibberish language this though just meandered all over the place and like like that sequence where you do at the beginning see that lizard sort of like defecating pearls or and you're like what the fuck is going on there is an alien that shits pearls that's hard to <laughs> deny but that's a that's a tough one to uh to shy away from um yeah i mean it's it's got uh, i don't know how many species of aliens but there's a lot stuffed in here there's a lot of invention so it's set on alpha which yeah. is this space station there's a long backstory to it which our last which, best hope for peace yeah which is basically a space station where every alien in the galaxy alien species just turn up and and start living on this place and it's gigantic and there, so there are all these different. There's like a waterland where you get all the water aliens, and, and gaslands where you get like aliens that are made of it's gas. A, it's a shit crystal maze. <laughs> it's a bit like the crystal maze. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and so the film kind of takes you on a journey. I do think he has put too much in this film. It's almost two and a half hours. Yeah, I do think it's exhausting. There's, it's mm-hmm. so hectic. There's so much going on, and another thing we have to touch on unlike The Fifth Element which had Bruce Willis and Gary Oldman as the, bringing yes. the star power I don't think Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne bring that kind of presence I agree I, weirdly I had no problem with Cara Delevingne I thought she was fine and she let's be honest it's called Valeria but she's the main character she has more screen time than he does uh, well, stop casting Dane DeHaan I guess is what I want to say and I don't mean stop casting him full stop I just mean he's not a leading man like he's a character actor and a really good character actor but he seems to be falling into her leading roles of late and I think that's not good yeah mm. I'm not I'm not a fan of Dane DeHaan the leading man I think he's much better in a supporting capacity he's, but he doesn't have the charisma to carry this character at all it's, it's a specific kind of character he's a kind of a, yeah he's an intergalactic space agent he's a guy who's full of daring do and, mm. and bright and bushy tailed and Dane DeHaan is not that. Like, I think he's very good in certain roles. I don't think he fits this one particularly well. And it does... And the film is very kind of screwball comedy-esque, the way it's written. And I don't think it... I don't think it quite gels 
with with the the kind of lead pair. Um, I, I I do like things about this film. I really like there's an action sequence which is set in a marketplace which is has parallel dimensions, so they're flicking between different dimensions, and that's never been done on screen. Yeah, before. and there's a bit where he's part in one dimension and his arms in the other one. Yeah, and so there's so much invention, and I think there's you can sense Luke Besson's just enthusiasm for this yeah. project. Like you can tell he's having a great time. He's trying to get as much as he can in from all these different comic books he loves. Uh, but I think it's ultimately exhausting to watch. And that's a kind of a big problem. And, and it's very uneven as well. And what did we give this? Two stars. We gave this two stars. Uh, so, you know, watch it if you like. Um, also out this week is The Emoji Movie. The story of which is... I mean, does anyone actually care? Uh, this is about an emoji uh, for which, from what I can gather, kind of tits about doing product placement for various apps uh, and making, making people beg for the sweet release of death. Uh, we sent Helen down to review this, and if I want to, I don't think she's really forgiven us. Um, she gave this film one star and three steaming poo emojis, I tell you uh, what each of which were voiced by Sir Patrick Stewart. Crumbs, really? Yeah. I didn't know that, but I do know that she's actually had to leave the country. Yeah. As a result. Yeah. And um, That's why she's not here today. Her, she has fled. That's right. And from her mountain eerie, um, where she's recuperating, she sent the following... <laughs> crazy okay. stroke cry for help yeah um, she does actually say she's too late for help so don't worry there but um, she says fundamentally it doesn't seem to understand what either emojis or movies are meant to do <laughs> which is to convey emotional human connection the plot <clears> TJ <throat> Miller plays a meh emoji who just feels too strongly about everything switches back and forth between eye rolling at phone use and toading up to product placing app makers it needs to be witty to work even vaguely and instead we get James Corden shouting a lot Kids seem into the characters at the start, but they were all switched off by the end. This is, I presume, she saw it at one of those um, uh, yeah, family the, the screenings, fun in the foyer type, rather family than, yeah. things. Yeah, um, and she ends with "Just save yourselves. It's too late for me." <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's, so that's, a, that's recommendation, a recommendation. Then. Yeah, we do uh, say one star is a recommendation. Yes, yes, it <laughs> if is. If you're in prison or <laughs> a very, very, very long intergalactic space flight, yeah. So mm. don't watch that. Uh, also out this week, uh, Gareth Tunley's Horror the Ghoul is out this week. This stars Alice Lowe and Tom Meaton. Uh, Meaton is a cop investigating a double, mur- a double murder, uh, and Lowe is a profiler who helps him go undercover as a mental patient. Uh, our very own horror guru, Kim Newman, saw this one, and he said... And I quote, it's a powerful, disturbing and intense, it is powerful, disturbing and intense viewing. This isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea. And yet he gave it four stars. Make of that what you will. Uh, I think that's a recommendation. He does think it's good in Kim's own inimitable way. Simon Um, Crook, who's also one of our horror icons um, in the Empire Stable, says that the gould is really gould. That's the most Simon Crook right. thing. Uh, via it Twitter. Is. Crookie says Gould, Kim says... And he said it was tea. made for the price of a scotch egg, <laughs> and it's a Brit indie miracle. Well, go and see the Gould. It depends where you get a scotch egg from, because you can get them from the Harrods Food Hall, and they probably cost... You could probably yeah, get a couple of or meals. you can get Bernard Matthews ones, which or are you can less get, so. You yeah, can get scotch instance. duck eggs that are quite expensive. Yeah, a scotch really? quail yeah. egg. It's <laughs> This is the thing. Uh, oh, good God. So, yeah, we should, yeah. Okay, it's Google, Google none four stars. We, it, none of, well, none of us have seen anything. We've pretty much established this. And, um, no, and right, and Mordy as well, also getting great reviews. Yeah, we haven't got onto that yet. First of all, we're Sorry. going to talk about Williams, directed by Morgan Matthews, uh, which is uh, about the ups and downs of the British Formula One team of the same name, uh, which centres around Sir Frank Williams, who's been quadriplegic since a road accident in 1986. Uh, Dan Jolin gave this three stars and called it, wait for it, an affectionate but unflinching portrait of a family consumed by its dedication to Formula One. 
Smell it uh, with your eyes. <laughs> smell it with your eyes, says Dan Jolin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, so there, good. And uh, yes, we have made like. this point before, but you you can make anyone's review sound stupid <laughs> if you say, you say in the Top Gear voice. voice. This, this is a thing that happens in the office quite regularly. <laughs> James or Chris will walk around, see what you're writing, and read it in that voice and ruin it, ruin everything, shatter your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it's more Chris than anyone else. Chris uh, does that an awful yes. lot. Yeah, it, it's it doesn't like special. it when you do it with his work, though. No, he doesn't. No, Although it's pretty funny. Uh, but yes, Mordy is out this week. This is Aisling Walsh's uh, film, uh, which stars Ethan Hawke and Stal- Sally Hawkins. Interesting. Ethan, Ethan Hawke is also in Valerian as a space pimp. Yes, he is. Called Joe. Yes, he is. Joe the Shit. space pimp. Joe the Space If it had Jeremy Renner in it, it would be Hawk, Hawkins, <laughs> Hawkeye. <laughs> what is going on? Uh, the Space Pimp stars in a true life tale of arthritic artist Maudie Dowley, who lives with her disapproving aunt in Nova Scotia in the 1930s. Space Pimp? What did you say? Uh, space Pimp. Ethan Hawke, we've just established he's oh, a Space Pimp. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> he's in Maudie, therefore, this, you see what I did there? Yeah, vaguely. Uh, this is, we have this four stars. Do you have anything to add on Maudie, Phil? No, but I've heard it's really good. It's good. I Four wish stars. I'd seen it. Yes. Next week I'm going to have seen everything. Well, funnily, that brings us on to the last one, which I must say I think is an inexplicable one. So, it's set in Denmark in the aftermath of World War Two. Yeah. It involves a surplus of landmines. Yeah. It's in Danish, and yet you haven't seen it. What the fuck is up with that? It's a good question. It is, in fact, called Land of Mine. Land of Mine. Which is That's possessive and a pun. Yeah. That's strong. I like that word. It okay. Is, it is strong. Is, it, is there a scene where somebody says, uh, what happens if you step on one and someone else goes, well, traditional practice is to leap up 50 <laughs> yards in the air and scatter yourself liberally across the surrounding countryside. They do. Black yes. I haven't seen it. I would have seen it. I have a very small child who has landmines of her own. Um, I think this film is Oscar nominated. Um, in the best foreign film category, I think I'm right in saying that. Well, I mean, and it's, it's apparently absolutely gripping. It was it's released this, in 2015, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's been out in Europe for like yeah, over a year. Has. So, um, my understanding is that the story of German POW is forced to clear up. I think they planted two million landmines on the Danish coast after the war. It's mm. a true story, um, and about you know this horrifying prospect seen through the eyes of young Germans, um, and it's apparently gripping. I have not seen it, but we. Given we it. gave it three of our most Danish stars. Oh, okay. Yeah. Three stars. Uh, and that is it for the most shambolic podcast in quite some time. Uh, we'll be back next week with <laughs> your regular host, you'll be pleased to know. And there's every possibility we'll be talking to David Lowry, the director of A Ghost Story. Alternatively, we might just stand in a corner with a sheet over our heads and stare at him for 15 minutes. Uh, we shall see. Uh, until that time, it is so long. Farewell. Have we to say and goodbye from our intrepid team of Nick. Goodbye. And Phil. Goodbye. And myself. Until next time.